0: Life is complex. Join us for the simple gifts of wisdom, love, and delight in the written word. 1984 by George Orwell Part 3, Chapter 6 Part 1 The chestnut tree was almost empty. A ray of sunlight slanting through a window fell on dusty tabletops. It was the lonely hour of fifteen. A tinny music trickled from the telescreens. Winston sat in his usual corner, gazing into an empty glass. Now and again he glanced up at a vast face which eyed him from the opposite wall. Big Brother is watching you, the caption said. Unbidden, a waiter came and filled his glass up with victory gin. "'shaking into it a few drops from another bottle "'with a quill through the cork. "'It was saccharine-flavored with cloves, "'the specialty of the café. "'Winston was listening to the telescreen. "'At present, only music was coming out of it, "'but there was a possibility that at any moment "'there might be a special bulletin "'from the Ministry of Peace, "'the news that the African front "'was disquieting in the extreme. "'On and off, he had been worrying about it all day.' A Eurasian army—Oceania was at war with Eurasia—Oceania had always been at war with Eurasia—was moving southward at terrifying speed. The midday bulletin had not mentioned any definite area, but it was probable that already the mouth of the Congo was a battlefield. Brazzaville and Leopoldville were in danger. One did not have to look at the map to see what it meant. It was not merely a question of losing Central Africa— For the first time in the whole war, the territory of Oceania itself was menaced. A violent emotion, not fear exactly, but a sort of undifferentiated excitement, flared up in him, then faded again. He stopped thinking about the war. In these days, he could never fix his mind on any one subject for more than a few moments at a time. He picked up his glass and drained it at a gulp. As always, the gin made him shudder and even wretch slightly. The stuff was horrible. The cloves and saccharin, themselves disgusting enough in their sickly way, could not disguise the flat, oily smell. And what was worst of all was that the smell of gin, which dwelt with him night and day, was inextricably mixed up in his mind with the smell of those... he never named them, even in his thoughts, and, so far as it was possible, he never visualized them, They were something that he was half-aware of, hovering close to his face, a smell that clung to his nostrils. As the gin rose in him, he belched through purple lips. He had grown fatter since they released him, and he had regained his old color. Indeed, more than regained it. His features had thickened. The skin on nose and cheekbones was coarsely red. Even the bald scalp was too deep a pink. A waiter, again unbidden, "'brought the chessboard and the current issue of the Times, "'with the page turned down at the chess problem. "'Then, seeing that Winston's glass was empty, "'he brought the gin bottle and filled it. "'There was no need to give orders. "'They knew his habits. "'The chessboard was always waiting for him. "'His corner table was always reserved. "'Even when the place was full, he had it to himself, "'since nobody cared to be seen sitting too close to him. "'He never even bothered to count his drinks.' At irregular intervals, they presented him with a dirty slip of paper, which they said was the bill. But he had the impression that they always undercharged him. It would have made no difference if it had been the other way about. He had always plenty of money nowadays. He even had a job, a sinecure, more highly paid than his old job had been. The music from the telescreen stopped, and a voice took over. Winston raised his head to listen. No bulletins from the front, however. It was merely a brief announcement from the Ministry of Plenty. In the preceding quarter, it appeared, the tenth three-year plan's quota for bootlaces had been overfulfilled by ninety-eight percent. He examined the chess problem and set out the pieces. It was a tricky ending, involving a couple of knights. White to play and mate in two moves. Winston looked up at the portrait of Big Brother. White always mates, he thought with a sort of cloudy mysticism. Always, without exception, it is so arranged. In no chess problem since the beginning of the world has black ever won. Did it not symbolize the eternal, unvarying triumph of good over evil? The huge face gazed back at him, full of calm power. White always mates. The voice from the telescreen paused and added in a different and much graver tone. You are warned to stand by for an important announcement at 1530. 1530! This is news of the highest importance. Take care not to miss it. 1530! The tinkling music struck up again. Winston's heart stirred. That was the bulletin from the front. Instinct told him that it was bad news that was coming. All day, with little spurts of excitement, the thought of a smashing defeat in Africa had been in and out of his mind. He seemed actually to see the Eurasian army swarming across the never-broken frontier and pouring down into the tip of Africa like a column of ants. Why had it not been possible to outflank them in some way? The outline of the West African coast stood out vividly in his mind. He picked up the white knight and moved it across the board. There was the proper spot. Even while he saw the Black Horde racing southward, he saw another force, mysteriously assembled, suddenly planted in their rear, cutting their communication by land and sea. He felt that by willing it, he was bringing that other force into existence. But it was necessary to act quickly. If they could get control of the whole of Africa, if they had airfields and submarine bases at the Cape, it would cut Oceania in two. IT MIGHT MEAN ANYTHING. DEFEAT. BREAKDOWN. THE REDIVISION OF THE WORLD. THE DESTRUCTION OF THE PARTY. HE DREW A DEEP BREATH. AN EXTRAORDINARY MEDLEY OF FEELING. BUT IT WAS NOT A MEDLEY EXACTLY. RATHER, IT WAS SUCCESSIVE LAYERS OF FEELING, IN WHICH ONE COULD NOT SAY WHICH LAYER WAS UNDERMOST, STRUGGLED INSIDE HIM. THE SPASM PASSED. HE PUT THE WHITE KNIGHT BACK IN ITS PLACE. But for the moment, he could not settle down to serious study of the chess problem. His thoughts wandered again. Almost unconsciously, he traced with his finger in the dust on the table. Two plus two equals five. They can't get inside you, she had said. But they could get inside you. What happens to you here is forever, O'Brien had said. That was a true word. There were things, your own acts, from which you could never recover. Something was killed in your breast, burnt out, cauterized out. He had seen her. He had even spoken to her. There was no danger in it. He knew, as though instinctively, that they now took almost no interest in his doings. He could have arranged to meet her a second time if either of them had wanted to. Actually, it was by chance that they had met. It was in the park, on a vile biting day in March, when the earth was like iron, and all the grass seemed dead, and there was not a bud anywhere except a few crocuses, which had pushed themselves up to be dismembered by the wind. He was hurrying along with frozen hands and watering eyes when he saw her, not ten meters away from him. It struck him at once that she had changed in some ill-defined way. They almost passed one another without a sign. Then he turned and followed her, not very eagerly. He knew that there was no danger. Nobody would take any interest in him. She did not speak. She walked obliquely away across the grass as though trying to get rid of him, then seemed to resign herself to having him at her side. Presently they were in among a clump of ragged, leafless shrubs, useless either for concealment or as protection from the wind. They halted. It was vilely cold. The wind whistled through the twigs and fretted the occasional dirty-looking crocuses. He put his arm round her waist. There was no telescreen, but there must be hidden microphones. Besides, they could see him. It did not matter nothing mattered they could have lain down on the ground and done that if they had wanted to his flesh froze with horror at the thought of it she made no response whatever to the clasp of his arm she did not even try to disengage herself he knew now what had changed in her her face was sallower and there was a long scar partly hidden by the hair across her forehead and temple but that was not the change It was that her waist had grown thicker, and, in a surprising way, had stiffened. He remembered how once, after the explosion of a rocket bomb, he had helped to drag a corpse out of some ruins, and he had been astonished not only by the incredible weight of the thing, but by its rigidity and awkwardness to handle, which made it seem more like stone than flesh. Her body felt like that. It occurred to him that the texture of her skin would be quite different from what it had once been. He did not attempt to kiss her, nor did they speak. As they walked back across the grass, she looked directly at him for the first time. It was only a momentary glance, full of contempt and dislike. He wondered whether it was a dislike that came purely out of the past, or whether it was inspired also by his bloated face and the water that the wind kept squeezing from his eyes. They sat down on two iron chairs— side by side, but not too close together. He saw that she was about to speak. She moved her clumsy shoe a few centimeters and deliberately crushed a twig. Her feet seemed to have grown broader, he noticed. I betrayed you, she said baldly. I betrayed you, he said. She gave him another quick look of dislike. Sometimes, she said, they threaten you with something something you can't stand up to, can't even think about. And then you say, don't do it to me, do it to somebody else, do it to so-and-so. And perhaps you might pretend afterwards that it was only a trick and that you just said it to make them stop and didn't really mean it. But that isn't true. At the time when it happens, you do mean it. You think there's no other way of saving yourself, and you're quite ready to save yourself that way you want it to happen to the other person you don't give a damn what they suffer all you care about is yourself all you care about is yourself he echoed and after that you don't feel the same towards the other person any longer no he said you don't feel the same there did not seem to be anything more to say The wind plastered their thin overalls against their bodies. Almost at once it became embarrassing to sit there in silence. Besides, it was too cold to keep still. She said something about catching her tube and stood up to go. We must meet again, he said. Yes, she said, we must meet again. He followed irresolutely for a little distance, half a pace behind her. They did not speak again she did not actually try to shake him off, but walked at just such a speed as to prevent him keeping abreast of her. He had made up his mind that he would accompany her as far as the tube station, but suddenly this process of trailing along in the cold seemed pointless and unbearable. He was overwhelmed by a desire not so much to get away from Julia as to get back to the Chestnut Tree Cafe, which had never seemed so attractive as at this moment. He had a nostalgic vision of his corner table, with the newspaper and the chessboard and the ever-flowing gin. Above all, it would be warm in there. The next moment, not altogether by accident, he allowed himself to become separated from her by a small knot of people. He made a half-hearted attempt to catch up, then slowed down, turned, and made off in the opposite direction. When he had gone fifty meters, he looked back, The street was not crowded, but already he could not distinguish her. Any one of a dozen hurrying figures might have been hers. Perhaps her thickened, stiffened body was no longer recognizable from behind. Tis the gift to be simple, tis the gift to be free, tis the gift to come down where we ought to be, and when we find ourselves in the place just right, t'will be in the valley of love and delight.